I want you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> if you were here last week uh, in the evening service, you uh, will recall, or at least hopefully you'll recall, that uh, we went over a study um, looking at the really the first half of Philippians chapter 2, or at least the first few verses of Philippians chapter 2, as we just continued our thoughts on the fellowship, the fellowship that we have in Christ, the fellowship that we should have, that we're supposed to have with the family of Christ. And uh, we specifically looked at verses 3 and 4, where I'll just read it. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Uh, and then we read on a little bit more uh, as we looked at just the, the character that Christ had, the kind of mindset he had, the attitude he had, and how Paul says you, you need to somehow cultivate that in your life. Uh, and hopefully we made some application as to how we can start doing that. I hope that we can make more application tonight to kind of help uh, really bring that home to try and understand how we can really uh, strive to make this a part of our lives, that kind of attitude a part of our lives, especially if we feel like we struggle with, with uh, <laughs> showing those kinds of emotions and having those kinds of emotions even for one another. <clears throat> and so what I want to do is stay in Philippians chapter 2 with that in mind as a foundation, with the foundation of putting pride aside. That's one of the things that it takes and putting on that attitude. I want to skip down to verse 12 in Philippians chapter 2 as we continue the, the thoughts on what the attitude of fellowship is supposed to be, specifically getting to the application of that. In verse 12 it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have uh, reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And, and really, that's the, the main section we're going to be looking at tonight. And we're just going to kind of do the same thing we did last week in just taking those couple of verses there and really focusing on those verses, particularly what you find in verse 14 and 15. This idea of not disputing, not, not grumbling. Um, I think that when we look at that, we're, I mean, that's, that is clear. It's very simple language. It's not like you have to do a lot of describing of what that looks like. But I... I do think that while we have that kind of fundamental fundamental understanding, uh, I think it's a lot easier to be found guilty of these things uh, than maybe we give credit for at times. And, and not just in the outright actions, but, but very simply in the thoughts that we have about our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we feel towards them, and ultimately the way we feel will shape how we treat them. And so I, I want to look at this text tonight and see how God expects us uh, not to grumble, not to dispute with one another, but rather to, to have that mind of Christ. And so, first of all, I just want to think about this idea of making sure that we are not um, grumbling. First of all, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, <clears throat> you actually uh, could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10 as he goes through the history of Israel and he talks about <laughs> Uh, all the things that they had that were really pointing to Christ. And then he begins to talk about with all of those beautiful blessings they had, how they failed almost at every turn. Um, and, and how they serve as, as an example for us to learn from so that we may not, in verse 10, grumble like they did. Learn from the pattern, their bad pattern. And try to make, make a correction and try to look the way you're supposed to. Well, you go on in uh, 1 Corinthians. In chapter 13, he begins... Uh, to talk about a, a few other things, specifically as you get to chapter 13, he talks about different um, spiritual gifts that some had, whether it be prophecy or tongues. And that would be something, especially uh, if you were alive in the first century and you were around those kinds of things, uh, maybe somewhat frequently, those would be something that would be somewhat honorable to be able to do, to be able to, uh, you know, interact in, um, especially with the brethren and trying to encourage them in that. But as he talks about these really 
blessings, these spiritual blessings, he begins in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 by saying, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and, I, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now I go through all that just to say, as you see on the screen, what Paul makes clear is that you can, you can put your physical body through much. You can do a lot of things and a lot of actions that seem righteous but even but just doing those doesn't necessarily mean that you know that the person themselves is righteous you know i just i I think especially about acts chapter five you have um at the very end of chapter four barnabas that son of encouragement he is a good example of someone who wanted to give much to the church and i mean he did because he wanted to help he wanted to encourage and he wanted to to help spread the gospel That was his desire. But then you have someone come right in after that in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They merely just want to look the part. They want to look like they have that same level of devotion. That's why they did that. I think because they, I mean, obviously, they at the very least, maybe it wasn't in direct, uh, you know, comparison to Barnabas. But at the very least, what they wanted was people to look at them and see, look at this righteous deed that they did. That must mean that they're righteous. But as you find in that story, it didn't mean they were righteous. In fact, it resulted in their downfall. It resulted in their literal death, their destruction. And so just because someone does maybe righteous things, that does not mean that they're doing it uh, with the right kind of attitude. And really the main point I want to focus in on is if you're not doing it with the right attitude, as Paul says, it's, it, it means nothing. It's moot. Even, even if I put my body to give my body to be burned, he says, if I have not love, that that was a meaningless sacrifice, a worthless offering. You give everything, and yet it means nothing. That is striking language. Um, in First Peter chapter four and verse nine, as he talks about the love that we're supposed to have for one another, how love covers a multitude of sins. He he, he talks about being hospitable. He says, "Be hospitable to one another without complaint." That's the same word actually that's used for grumbling in Philippians chapter two, in verse fourteen. And so he says. Be hospitable to one another. That is something that we are responsible for. Not just elders, but we as Christians are supposed to be responsible for being hospitable to one another and making sure that we're doing it the right way because right after that, he's without complaint, without grumbling. What do you think that means? Well, I mean, obviously we know what that means. It means not just looking the part, but making sure that we are, are being hospitable because we want to extend that kind of, that kind of, closeness with one another because we want to be with one another in the first place Um, at the very least because that's what our father wants because that's what the savior our lord wants and so uh you know but but all that just say even if you do something like that it can mean nothing if we don't have the right mindset i think sometimes you know maybe that's harder to see with certain things like being hospitable you can invite a whole group of people you know maybe someone here at lakeside wants to have the whole congregation over at their house maybe maybe they're able to uh you know have a humongous living room i don't know but but maybe they have everybody over and you can look at something like that and you could see well wow that i mean that is a beautiful thing and really i mean just out of you it is it's a beautiful thing to have everyone together and to be able to visit like that with one another outside of just these walls. But, but uh, you know, I've, I've uh, we'll, we'll stop the example there because <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to try and say something that's not there. But in the past, there has been moments where <laughs> when you look at the people who have kids and the kids have been watching maybe mom and dad trying to get their house together and trying to set everything up so that everyone can come over <laughs> and, and, and uh, you maybe kind of say something like, man, your mom and dad, they are so gracious. And they just, they, it just seems like they really love to be with brethren. And then, you know, maybe one of the kids says, I, I don't know about that because all week all I heard was yelling and nothing but stress and nothing but, nothing, nothing but terror on mom and dad's face. And why is that? Because we've turned hospitality into to a, not even a chore, but, but a, a prospect that terrifies us to our core. Uh, sometimes we complain about people who put themselves on Instagram and try to act like they, they create this false veneer of what their life really looks like. They, everyone looks perfect on Instagram. Everyone looks perfect on Facebook. 
And obviously, we, we, we see that kind of, uh, that kind of false, uh, that, that false notion there because it's easy to look that way in a picture. But what happens when the camera's put down? What happens when you're actually, when you're actually living in reality and not just on social media? Well, well, clearly you can see past that. But, but I think we sometimes forget that notion when it comes to something like hospitality. Because we, we try to make everything look good when we're going to have someone over. But, but, I mean, beyond just when the visitation is, is, is you know, occurring and after it occurs, how, how do we pick up our lives? Was it nothing but just a you know, terrifying chore? Or was it something that our kids could look at and say, I, I can tell they, they like that? Not to say it won't be stressful or tiring, but we don't want, you know, young, the younger generation, we don't want people around us to look at us and think, well, that doesn't look like they're enjoying that. That doesn't look like they really uh, like the idea of people coming over. No, we want it to be whenever we do something that we're not just trying to make this false veneer of, of righteousness, but that we're really trying to, to create that holy atmosphere, try to bring people together and be with one another as much as possible. Well, going beyond that, <clears throat> Uh, this requires, I think, patience and deference, uh, especially as you look at the application throughout the New Testament. It's not just that we have to have this kind of patience. It's not just that we have to have the right kind of attitude along with these righteous actions. We need both. But we, we especially need to have that when it comes to the brethren when maybe there's a disagreement. Romans chapter 14, that is a very um, familiar passage for that reason that sometimes there are going to be differences of opinion. Sometimes there are going to be different judgment calls made uh, by different brethren. And one of the main things that I think Paul tries to get across to these people in Romans chapter 14 is, listen, if it is in just an opinion, if it is just a judgment call, you need to make sure that you don't forget <laughs> that righteous kind of mindset. Romans 14 verse 1, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Take, take a moment and think, what, what do you think that looks like? Someone who does accept the one who is weak in faith, but specifically for the purpose of passing judgment. Can, can you think of an example? I mean, I, I think we could think of several, several examples of what that looks like. I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't think it takes long. You know, you, you talk about someone who... Uh, you hear different things all the time, but maybe something small is, well, you know, I just really, I really just don't care for that guy. Well, why is that? Because I've told him I really don't like, you know, I'll fly away. I don't like that him. And he just leads it every time he goes up there. And so I just have no respect for him. Okay. Solid objection to the man. Or, or maybe um, you, you look at somebody or you talk to somebody, you hear them speaking about maybe politics or something. I don't I don't think that politics is ever a, really a helpful thing, uh, but but someone, you hear someone talking about that, and and whoever the president is, whether it was in 2016 or in 2022, you look at the what they're saying, and they just, well, I just really can't stand this president. Or maybe they say the opposite: I love everything about the man. Well, certainly, if if someone says that they love everything about, a, you know, a governing official, it may make you question their judgment a little bit. But, but when you look at something as, as trivial and as, and I, when I say inconsequential, I don't mean it means nothing, but really as, as carnal as politics, are we really going to create, you know, a bunch of, a big hullabaloo all because someone likes one president better than another? I think one really prime example is when COVID struck. You had people entrench themselves on extreme sides, both sides, and with sound brethren, not just, not just different people who had different political beliefs, but people who were, were brethren in Christ. But they had gone so far into two different extremes, and you had one side saying, I, I cannot respect that man anymore because all he cares about is his own liberties and he's going to kill grandma. And then you have someone on the other side who says, I, I will never, never give, it, give them any more of my time, give them any more of my energy, give them any more of my, my love or affection because all they want to do is put all their restrictions on me. And here Romans 14, I think, talks about something so trivial, so, and again, I, I know that something like COVID, that can strike deep because it's, it's, it's health concerns. There are some, some legitimate concerns. But it really did seem like politics started to stream in, even among brethren. 
and it caused divides, not over doctrine, but because of simple difference of opinion. And, and brethren, that is a silly thing. That is a stupid thing. By biblical standards, it is foolish to divide over something that is not, uh, that is, that is, has nothing to do with doctrine, but just simply a matter of people do not want to suffer the wrong. That's not a good thing. And that's not the attitude we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have a servant heart. Now, we may get annoyed. I'm not saying that we're not going to, that we can't ever disagree. Uh, but grumbling should never be an option. That should not even be the last resort. It shouldn't even be on the list of things that we are thinking about doing. Because all it ever does is make things worse. I mean, you just look, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, look at the history of grumbling in the people of Israel. Did it ever do anything good? No. It just made things worse. In fact, it made their, their, their I think, their relationships with God that much worse because they furthered themselves every time they did it well finally with this point I want to look at another place that this word is used uh, the word for grumbling there in John 7 I, I, I think that this entails a lot in John chapter 7 and verse 12 it says there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him talking about Jesus some were saying he's a good man others were saying no on the contrary he leads the people astray now, again, that, that word in the New American Standard, it's grumbling. I, it may be different in the New King James, but it's the, it's the same Greek word. And I, I think that this is interesting. I wanted to note this because what did you have most of Jesus' ministry? Well, you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had many kinds of people who were simply trying to, to look for something to pounce on. And not only that, but they were ever constantly grumbling. They, they were constantly gossiping. They were constantly insulting and, and, and despising, considering small everything that he had to say. Now, you may not see that with the same uh, extremism. You may not see him with the same vehement hatred uh, that, that you do when, when people were doing this with Jesus. But I think all of those things, when you talk about gossip and insults and, and, and things like that, I think all of that is entailed or is, is encompassed by this notion of grumbling. It's not just a simple, oh, this is really stupid. I think it de definitely entails that, but it goes beyond that too. What are, <laughs> when no one's listening, except for maybe our closest relatives, how do we speak about brothers and sisters in Christ at Lakeside? Is it going to drastically change when we get behind closed doors in, in the privacy comfort of our own homes? And, and are our kids going to hear nothing but bitterness when speaking about our brethren? Or is it going to remain the same of we just want to continue striving with them? We want to continue encouraging them, and we want to hope that they're going to continue encouraging us, and we're going to pray for that. Essentially, what this entails is just the exact opposite of edifying. It is everything but edifying. It is everything but encouraging, but it just does the opposite of that and brings people further down, brings people further away from God and discouraging them more and more. And it is often, I would say, if, if not always, sprouted from hatred or bitterness. Over in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. <coughs> Colossians chapter 3. And we'll read a couple verses here. Beginning in verse 8. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 8 beginning. It says, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth quite a few things so far. He continues on in verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, what's, what's the answer? I mean, we know what we have to put off. We know what we can't do, which is, I, I think, really all encompassed under this this notion of grumbling and so all of that we cannot let it be a part of our vernacular we cannot let it be a part of our feelings towards one another how do we do that well skipping down to verse 14 he says beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity that is the main point that i want to focus on and, and we'll, we're going to come back to that as we end with some application it all comes down to love because love forgives as you see in verse 13 uh, and, and love remembers the forgiveness that we have. Love bears with one another. And, and, and again, we'll come back to this notion. But that is how you get over this. That is how you start to, to at least 
cultivate the right kind of, of mindset and emotions towards your brethren if you don't have those all, uh, already, if you, if, or to at least repel the negative ones. Uh, and so I think we need to think about, a, uh, think about that from time to time. The notion that just because the righteous acts are there, clearly that doesn't mean that, that we're fooling God. God will not be mocked. We have to make sure that if, if we're doing these righteous actions, we are striving just as much, if not more so, to make sure that the proper, appropriate, scriptural mindset, the, the scriptural heart that we're supposed to have, it, uh, coincides along with that. And so he, he says not to grumble with one another, but he also says that we are not to dispute as well. And this uh, word is translated in a couple different ways. In the New English, in the New English translation, rather, in verse uh, 14 of Philippians chapter 2, it uses the word arguing. And essentially, that's what you're talking about. It is arguing that brethren should have no business in. Uh, over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Again, you see this same word, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and dissension. If you had to guess, which which word do you think is the word for for disputing or argument? It's dissension, and and I think someone even whispered. But yeah, it, it is dissension. That's the same word as what you find in Philippians chapter two and verse fourteen. And and all that. So all Paul is saying here is as 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 and again, I think this is a pretty familiar passage as well as he's talking about the need for prayer and who we need to pray for, lifting up. Uh, men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. I think there's interesting uh, things to say about that alone. Uh, you know, can we lift up holy hands? But what he ends that with is without wrath and without dissension, without senseless, carnal arguing, uh, without the, the, the kind of arguing that really only the world should be uh, busy with, but not brethren. In Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 and verse 46 beginning. Speaking of not atheists and not speaking of just random people that approach Jesus, but speaking about the disciples, it says an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, uh, receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Now, as you think about what they were arguing about, and, and the, I have it highlighted there and, and boldened to see that those are the word that, that's the same Greek word that's used uh, for for disputing or for arguing rather. What were the disciples arguing about? What was the dispute over? Was it about how they how they could who, uh, who was going to elevate the rest over them the most? Was it about Who's going to be the first to start washing each other's feet? Well, it wasn't the example that Jesus gave them. Rather, they were arguing over, I think, the reason that Jesus had to give them that example in himself. They were arguing about who, who among us is going to be elevated above everyone instead of, instead of thinking about that humility that they're supposed to have. Instead of thinking about who can we elevate above us in this, in this kingdom, in this kingdom of, of brotherly love, of, of edification, who can we look for and who's going to, to be the greatest son of encouragement? It wasn't that, but rather it was solely about that arrogance and that pride that we said that is the foundation. We have to get rid of that, root that out of our heart before you can even get to the, the real application, before you can start uh, treating uh, brethren the, the way that we're supposed to. But what were they, they were arguing about worldly things. They were arguing about the same things that every other person wants, about that every other person who, who isn't a believer, who doesn't have the same hope that we do, who doesn't have the same joy that we do, argues about. And so I think that that's pretty striking as well. The dissension was over carnal things instead of spiritual. But going beyond that, in Matthew chapter 15, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 15 is another example that I think is uh, is uh, enlightening. Matthew chapter 15. This word is also linked to wicked reasonings. Matthew chapter 15. I don't know if I was saying chapter 19. Matthew chapter 15, in the beginning in verse 19. Well, we'll, we'll actually begin in, in verse 15 as he's explaining this parable 
uh, it says, uh, as Peter says to Jesus, explain the parable to us, Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now, Jesus had no issue with personal hygiene. That's clearly not the case here. What is he talking about? Well, the Pharisees had made it essentially just about personal hygiene. I mean, they had made it as, as surface as you possibly could when it came to what it mean, uh, or what it meant to be, be holy and set apart. It was just about, if you've been around Gentiles, you need to make sure you wash their Gentile germs off. No, it was, a, it was supposed to be a little bit more significant than that. The Pharisees, obviously, they didn't care about that. They didn't want to go deeper than the surface. And Jesus is talking to the disciples saying, you, you should know better. And you, and you shouldn't be thinking the same way the Pharisees are. You need to have the proper heart, and you need to actually have the, 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 the appropriate care that they lack. And, this, and the word that's used, I meant to mention this, but in verse 19, that word is evil thoughts. That's uh, interesting, I thought, because as you think about uh, the point here, when it comes to the, the worldly uh, or the wicked reasonings, really, it, it, I think it just simply is worldly reasonings, that which... We reason within ourselves and we come to the inappropriate carnal conclusion. I think that was the issue with the disciples. They didn't come to the appropriate conclusion. They came to the same conclusion that the Pharisees did. And that was clearly uh, uh, going astray from the path that Jesus wanted them to go on. Over in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. <coughs> Romans chapter 1. At the beginning of Romans... Uh, in the first few chapters, Paul is making a very clear-cut argument about how really everyone has sinned. Whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He starts with the Gentile. He starts with those who did not have, uh, who did not have that relationship or that covenant with God. And so uh, beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. You might just be able to tell from the inflection in my voice, the word, that the same uh, word there when it comes to that kind of wicked reasonings is speculations. And again, I just think that's interesting because as he's talking about people who do not care about God, who don't believe God, they come to these, they come to these really foolish, most foolish of conclu conclusions because of their own personal whims, because of their speculations. And, and I just, as I was going through the list of times that, that this word is used, I thought it was interesting because I, as, this, uh, as this word sometimes lends itself to that notion of speculations, I just wonder how often have we acted on merely carnal speculations? And we'll get a little bit more into that in just a moment, but, but what could that look like when I, when, I, when I say carnal speculations, merely carnal speculations? Well, clearly we can't see into the mind of, of man. We can't see into the heart of our fellow man. Only God can. And so we don't know the thoughts like Jesus could as he's looking into the Pharisees' hearts. How, how quickly do we act on just speculation and not stone-cold facts that are before us? How, how much slower are we at times when it comes to the facts that we can't dispute? Rather, we give the benefit of the doubt when, when there really is no more doubt and we are so quick to jump to the worst conclusions without giving the benefit of the doubt when it comes to brethren. And it shouldn't be that way. Rather, it should be that we give the benefit of the doubt to them and, and that we think the best of them. We come to a, a better conclusion than the rest of the world would because the rest of the world is just that cynical. They, they think in those ways. They think in, uh, within those boundaries, within those terms. And so... I think it's making decisions or forming opinions through specifically worldly motives. Over in James chapter 2, 
James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. But you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Motives is our word there. And really, I think that this is striking because as you think about that notion of of the, the word that we're looking at, it is just thinking, again, in the same way that the rest of the world does. They're making their distinction of classes of people because... Well, just like everyone else, well, if they're rich, well, then we want, we want to put them in the high places. But the poor, no, not so much. The marginalized, not so much. And so they think in, in purely secular notions. Uh, over in Luke chapter 5, in verse 22, uh, again, when speaking about the Pharisees and Jesus, Jesus has just healed a man. Uh, well, actually, he's not healed him yet. But as he is about to heal this man, and the paralytic man, He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees, they just can't take that. And what do they do? It says, Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, as they asked the question, well, who but God can do these things? He answers and says to them, why are you reasoning uh, in your hearts? And he begins to rebuke them. And he rebukes them to a degree because, now I think this is a bit more gentle rebuke than than he'll get to, like in Matthew chapter 23. That gets pretty pretty direct there and, and pretty harsh there, and rightfully so. But, but he rebukes them because what had they done? Here's Jesus who throughout all of his ministry is proving that he is the son of God and is, is just simply wanting to spread his kingdom and that good news, that gospel message. And while he is trying to share this good news that should bring joy, the Pharisees don't find any joy in it. All they find is bitterness and anger and hatred towards Jesus. And so every chance they get, they are listening and hanging on every word for the wrong reasons. They want to catch him and trap him and put him on the cross. That's all they want. All they want to do is trap him so that they can kill him, so that they can arrest him, so that they can just maybe uh, you know, trap him in his words and, and just prove that he is not who he says he is. Because they don't want that message. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because in their reasonings, in their motives, it clearly wasn't spiritual. They didn't want what Jesus was offering. And so in their reasoning, they decided we are going to make sure that we only uh, grumble about him uh, so much so that that no one will believe him anymore. We want to just continue insulting him and continue to try to make him look foolish in front of the crowd so that way no one will want to follow him anymore. Well, that's where worldly reasoning brings you. That's always where worldly uh, reasoning will bring us. And so the Pharisees immediately jump to the worst assumptions. They jump to the worst possible conclusions. And I, I just bring this up because, I, again, I think that sometimes we are prone to do this. Not sometimes, but many times. Especially when it's people that, as we were talking about earlier in Romans chapter 14, we just can't stand because of a different position that they have taken or maybe a different uh, opinion that they have on something than we do. And it's just so hard when, when someone else disagrees with us. Again, with, with opinion, not doctrine, with, with simple judgments. Can we too quickly jump to the worst conclusions about brethren? I think we absolutely can. And, and as we were looking at some examples earlier, things like COVID and, and, and of that nature, you saw it time and time again. People would say, he's, he's, he's probably just doing this. He's probably just taking this stance just because he wants to be stubborn. You know, you know what somebody does when they do that? They go right to, well, may, it, they, they skip over that. Maybe he's doing this for a reason. Maybe he is, he's actually conscientiously against this, or maybe he's actually conscientiously struggling with this. Instead of going to that side of compassion, they go immediately, like the Pharisees, what is he trying to do here? What is he trying to pull? He's just stubborn. Or, or maybe they just he's, he's just trying to be divisive. He doesn't care about the unity of the people here. They, he, just wants to, he just wants to shove his opinion down everybody's throats. And really, the attitude that says that, I think, is the one that wants to shove their opinion down everybody's throats, more often than not. And so I think very, very often we can tend to do that with, with people that we should be holding their hands and striving to get to heaven with them. And so instead of using 
nothing but, but bitter language towards them. We should be striving to encourage them and edify them every single day, stimulating one another to love and good works so that way we can help each other get to that ultimate goal. And uh, as much as possible with one another, side by side. Well, so in verse 14, he says that we are to do this without grumbling, without disputing, without arguing. But then in verse 15, go back to verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> this is our final point. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. He talks about this notion of, of proving ourselves. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not uh, run in vain nor toil in vain. Again, you, you look at this notion of being above reproach that is a qualification of, of, of an elder. Incidentally, that's something, as we see here, all of us are supposed to be striving for. So that's not just for a few individuals. You know, we look at, this is a side point, but when you look at the qualifications of elders and deacons, what, when, what we mean when, when a man is appointed to be an elder or a deacon, what that means is this isn't something that they're struggling to attain. This isn't something that they are clearly far away from. This is something that they have done well and maintained for, for a minute now. This is something that, not to say they'll never struggle again, but that they have actually, they're a good example of it. But guess what? That doesn't, when you think about the qualifications, that doesn't mean that none of us have to do anything in, in the same manner. No, even in Philippians 2, Paul says, you all must make sure that you are striving to be like children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked generation. And you know what? That's difficult. That really is. It's hard because all around us, there's nothing but crookedness. People that are bent out of shape. And what is God telling us? You, you can't be bent like them. You have to be upright. And you have to be innocent, blameless. You don't, you don't be stained by that kind of wickedness. And as children of God, I think simply the, the point that I want to make here is just we are to act like what we are. If we have put Christ on in baptism, if we have been converted, if we've been put into God's kingdom, we have to act like children of God. And what I think that means is we have to show that love that he has shown us. In 1 John chapter 3 beginning, 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, uh, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, you skipped over to chapter 4 of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And as he continues to talk about what we should look like, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is the defining, qual uh, uh, this is the defining quality. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And John just, uh, in, in, in the gospel, he makes the case that this is essentially the badge of discipleship, that we have love for one another. This is supposed to be the distinguishing factor that proves to people, that shows people they're different because they treat each other differently than especially the rest of the world. And so how, how do we look like children of God? We have to strive to emulate Christ-like love. That, that's the main point. And we want to have the proper attitude, attain to that appropriate attitude of fellowship. We have to look more and more like Christ in the heart, in the attitude, and that is, is, is found ultimately in the love that he had for us. And so what does love do? What does, how does love view? Well, first of all, uh, sometimes we say, well, love, it just looks past differences. I, I, I think it does a little bit more than that. In fact, I don't even know if that's a good way of saying it. Love doesn't look past differences. It recognizes the differences, but it bears it. It doesn't just act like it's not there, but it bears it. Uh, uh, back over in 1 Corinthians 13, we were there a moment ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. Picking up where we left off, he says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant 
does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I, I, just one of those beautiful passages you can read in all the scriptures. You read through that, that's difficult. That's hard. If you don't think that's hard, get married one day and, and then see, what, see how that feels after just a couple months. It's amazing how tiny things like that is not where you put the toothbrush can really make you question, I, I thought love was a bit stronger than that. Well, sometimes, sometimes it isn't. And we've got to learn to be better. Because when we dispute over little things like that and cause a great rift for a love such as that, that's a failure that we need to fix. And, and so what does love do? It bears all things. It hopes all things. And when we say bears all things, when Paul says that, he is certainly not saying that you just overlook you know, doctrinal issues. We don't overlook sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is someone who is in the middle of sin, and he says, listen, you can't fellowship that. You have to show not just, you, you can't, not only do you have to get that out of your midst, but you need to also show the rest of everyone that's looking in that you do not approve of such behavior, that that is not something that you abide by. Because it's not something that God abides by. And so he's not just saying, well, just act like sin isn't there. If there's sin in the camp, they're going to root it out. But then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and what does he say? If someone has sinned against you, if someone has wronged you, defrauded you, what's the question he asks? Would you not just suffer the wrong? You don't want to take your brother to court. You don't want to show the world that that's how fickle and shallow your love is. Your love is supposed to endure what they will not. And you see time and time again, family members going into business together and you have, you have lawyers that will advise them, make sure that you put, make sure you do a couple of these files just basically to say, if, if things end before we want them to, we're not going to take each other to court. We're not going to destroy one another because of, you know, whatever issue comes up. You know, there's a, a brother, uh, uh, well, brother Stephen Russell, he, he and his brother worked with each other for a while. And, and the lawyer even said that. He said something essentially to the same degree of, just make sure you go ahead and do this. This is what everyone else does. And they, they just said, we don't need it. And he said, trust me, I, I, people say that all the time. You would not imagine how many people say that. But I, I'm telling you, you just need to do this. And they, and they didn't do it. And it's because they knew at the end of the day, even if there was an issue that, that ended up, you know, resolving or dissolving the, the, the business itself, they were not going to go against what the scriptures teach. Because they had a love, not just because they were brothers, but because they were brothers soaked in the blood of Christ. I mean, that's why. And they didn't need that kind of form. They didn't need the same secular promises that the rest of the world makes. Now, they have a promise that runs a little bit deeper. And so, it doesn't just look past differences. It bears it. And it endures it. And it suffers long. That's what we mean by patience, that long suffering. Well, not only that, love presumes the best of one another, not the worst. I kind of talked about this a moment ago. We could look at uh, over just a page over 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Paul is not saying dabble in, in wickedness. What he's saying is be as innocent as a child is. Because children, they don't, I mean, not to say that toddlers don't act out every now and then, but that's not necessarily evil. <laughs> He's saying, you be like an infant. You don't even think in those terms. But when it comes to, at the end of verse 20, when it comes to your thinking, you be like an adult. You be mature. Don't be an infant. Don't be naive. And, and the reason I go through that is just because I, I, I want to, and I don't want to stretch the, stretch the verse, but, but I, in terms of application, I think we need to think that way in terms of our brethren. We want to always give the benefit of the doubt to brethren. Brother Tom Holly, I love the way he says this. He, he, he will talk about relationships that, he, that we, we have with fellow Christians, and he says, if, if a brother proves me wrong, I want it to be that I thought too highly of him, not too low of him. And you know, every time he says something like that, you know he's, the, just the way he says it, he's genuine. And it strikes me because every time I just think, I, I have I can I can can't even count on both hands how many times just in my lifetime that I have done the exact opposite. I've expected 
the very worst, of the people that I need to give the, that I need to give that benefit of the doubt, that I need to buy like an infant in terms of innocence. Is it possible, maybe when someone texts us a message or emails something or makes a comment, makes a joke on our behalf, maybe makes us the, the, the butt of the joke, so to speak, is it possible that we misconstrued something? Especially when it comes to technology and texting, just assume you misconstrued something because you don't get the facial cues, you don't get the, the tone that they're speaking in. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I, I have texted someone something to have to end up after three hours of texting them over and over again, that came out the wrong way. Ultimately have to call them anyway. Just go ahead and call, get it over with. It, it takes two minutes, you're done. I, I digress, but... Is it possible that we misconstrued the message? Is it possible that we misconstrued something that someone said? Even if we think that there was a certain tone in what they said, wouldn't it be better to just go to them and say, I just, I just want to make sure that, that, that you don't have anything against me or that I didn't do anything to you to wrong you? Because it kind of sounded like that. And maybe there is something that, that needs to be addressed. Guess what? You have obeyed Christ in what he said. If, if you have sinned against someone, you know someone has something to do, you put your offering down, you go to them and you fix it. In every case, whether you're wronged or you have wronged someone, the responsibility is put on you. Matthew 18 and Matthew chapter 5, he says, you go and you try to make things right. And you strive for that kind of peace. And so we need to think in those terms, not immediately be offended. Everyone in this culture is so eager to be offended. It, it is such a relief and it is such a, a, a break from that stupidity to have people to be around a group of people that aren't as eager and that can let things roll off their shoulder and not assume the very worst of everyone that comes in their path and so we, we need to give the benefit of the doubt when it comes to our brethren and not when even if even if something happens and sin actually is present we we should be shocked instead of just nodding our heads saying oh, i expected as much i guessed it the whole time I want to be shocked. I, I want, just like Brother Holly always says, I would rather be proved wrong by brother because I thought too highly of them, not too low. And so that, that's what love looks like. Not only that, but if complaints do arise, uh, as hopefully they won't, but we're, we are men and, and women, and so complaints do often arise, but if they do, among brethren, how should we deal with them? We, we won't go over to Acts chapter 6, but you see a pretty good way, I think, that they deal with it. The apostles, when that complaint arises, it's the same word that's actually used there uh, for grumbling, I believe. It, it, when the complaints do arise, how do they uh, resolve the issue? Well, they don't let it simmer. They don't let it, uh, the, the wound fester. They don't let it get worse. But the apostles, they make a plan and they come up with a solution. The apostles did not say, you know what, we're, we're not going to do anything because you know what, you're just a bunch of whiny babies. There are people that like to say, predominantly men maybe who would say that you all are just a bunch of whiny babies so you know what I'm, I don't care forget it you deal with it yourselves the apostles didn't say that they came up with a solution gently and affectionately with brotherly love and kindness I mean that that's how you take care of it and so we need to take uh, we need to learn something from the apostles we need to learn something from those who walked after the footsteps of Jesus uh, as directly as they did well how could we ever talking about all of these things how could we ever look past such deep annoyances and nuisances or maybe even just downright wrongs as we've talked about in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. How can we view our brethren better? Again, ultimately, it just means we have to consider the love of Christ. Over in 1 Corinthians 8, just a couple more passages and, and then we'll, the lesson will be yours. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul says, but take care that this liberty of yours, as he's talking about those, those liberties, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you have knowledge, uh, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, what does Paul say? I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. <laughs> no. Meat? I mean, initially, that's my response. But Paul truly can say, and confidently so, I imitate Christ. Imitate me because I truly imitate Christ. And he was willing to do that. 
And we need to be willing to do that when it comes to the liberties that maybe we do actually indeed have. But what does he say in verse 11? When he talks about the brother, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Have you thought about, have you looked at your brother through that lens? Have you looked at your sister who maybe annoys you? Have you looked at them through that lens? I think often, well, I know when, when the love and affection wanes for our brother or sister, it's because we've forgotten that, particularly. Not only that, but look at that person through Christ's eyes. The, the one that he loved so much that he wanted to die for, that, that he was willing to die for, and not harboring any bitterness, but because he wanted them to be saved. Over in 1 John chapter 4, this is the final text we'll look at, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. He says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be for the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now skipping down to verse five and ver- uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Maybe the ultimate question is that we have to ask, do you love God? Do you love God as much as you thought you did? Because if you do, you are striving, actively striving to love your brother and look at him through, through that godly lens. So again, the question is, are we? Are we looking at them through that lens? Are we striving to look at them through that lens? How have you done on this? Generally, I'll just say, I I struggle. I struggle often because I will frequently, you're always going to find somebody, like I said a few weeks ago, there's always a certain personality that you just can't stand. And so we will struggle, but we don't want to struggle and and get so used to the struggle that we're just going to live with it. No, we need to bring it back and think about the love that Jesus had and then extend that. Extend it as much as we can and try to manifest that in our own lives as much as we can. Now, as we talk about this fellowship that we have with, with brethren and, and trying to, as in the application, we're trying to figure out how to strengthen, strengthen this family. I will just say, we are not inviting you, if you're not a Christian, to a perfect family. I hope that that point has been made in this, in this uh, uh, the sermon. Many of you are probably thinking, well, it's been made about 49 times so far. I hope that it's pretty obvious. We're not inviting you to a perfect family where we'll never have disagreements or arguments ever again, but we are extending the invitation of Christ to a perfect father. You're never going to have perfection in this life. You're never going to have a lack of temptations in this life, but you will have a group of people who are striving with you to get over those weaknesses, to get over those temptations, and who are striving every single day to get closer and closer to eternity, not away from God, but but in the presence of his love. That's the invitation of Christ tonight. Do you want that? Do you want to start striving for that with us, with the brethren at Lakeside here? If you aren't a Christian and you want assistance in becoming one, we would love to help you in that. If you're just someone who has given their life to Christ, but you feel like you're struggling, you don't have to do this alone. We are here to benefit one another and strengthen one another. So use the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have here. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means,